I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight, episode two of the 1998 Massey Lectures, Becoming Human, written and presented by the distinguished Canadian writer and social thinker Jean Vanier. The Massey Lectures are co-sponsored by CBC Radio and Massey College of the University of Toronto. Lecturers are invited to give a series of five talks on contemporary issues for a wide general audience. Since the lectures began in 1961, Massey lecturers have included such prominent thinkers as Claude Lévi-Strauss, Carlos Fuentes, Doris Lessing, Noam Chomsky and Northrop Fry. The book of the 1995 Massey lectures, The Unconscious Civilization by John Ralston Saul, won the Governor-General's Prize for Nonfiction. This year's Massey lecturer, Jean Vanier, is the founder of L'Arche, the international organization famed for its innovative methods of working with mentally handicapped people. Jean Vanier is also a prolific writer, and in his many books he has developed the idea of what it means to be a good individual and what it means to live in harmony with the world and with God. In this year's Massey Lectures, Jean Vanier discusses the necessity of conceiving a new vision of humanity, a society in which the gifts of all, particularly those of the weak and the powerless, are a common heritage of equal value. To record these lectures, we travel to Jean Vanier's home in Trollibreuil in the north of France, where he established the very first Lache community over 30 years ago. Because the lectures were recorded on location, from time to time you'll hear the sounds of real life, including birds and the occasional car. In episode one, heard last night, Jean Vanier spoke of loneliness as an essential human condition, a place where we can be broken, but also the place from which we begin the search for the new. Tonight on Ideas, Belonging, episode two of Becoming Human, the 1998 Massey Lectures. And here's Jean Vanier. The first of these lectures was about loneliness, the feeling of emptiness we have when we are all alone. The basic human need is for at least one person who believes and trusts in us. But that is not enough. It doesn't stop there. Each of us needs to belong, not just to one other person, but to a family, a group and a culture. So this lecture is about belonging. Belonging is important for our growth to maturity, even further. It is important for our growth to inner freedom. It is only through a sense of belonging that we can break out of the shell of individualism and self-centeredness that both protects and isolates us. However, the human drive for belonging has also its pitfalls. There is an innate need in my heart to identify with a group, both for protection and security, to discover and affirm my identity, and to use the group to prove my worthiness and goodness, indeed, even to prove that I am better than others. It is my belief that it is not religion or culture that are at the root of human conflict, but the way in which groups use religion or culture to dominate each other. But let me hasten to add if it were not religion or culture being used as a stick with which to beat others, it would be something else. 
Are human beings basically evil? The French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre maintained that love is only one person's freedom eating up another's freedom. Are we all called to live and die in conflict? Do all our generous acts merely conceal the need to be superior to others? But Sartre does lead me to my main point. What is this need to belong? Is it only a way of dealing with personal insecurity, sharing in the sense of identity that a group provides? Or is this sense of belonging an important part of the journey of every one of us in our growth towards freedom? Is the sense of belonging akin to the earth itself, a nurturing medium that allows plants and trees to grow and to share their flowers and fruits with all? A group is the embodiment of this need to belong. A group can, however, close up in itself, believing that it is superior to others. But my vision is that belonging should be at the heart of a fundamental discovery, that we all belong to a common humanity, the human race. We may be rooted in a specific family and culture, but we come to this earth to open up to all people and to serve them and receive from them the gifts they bring us, as well as to all of humanity. In 1986, Lash founded a community in Bethany in the West Bank, just a few miles from Jerusalem. Our house was located in a Palestinian Muslim area not far from the mosque. All our neighbours were Muslim, as were the owners of our house, Ali and Fatma, who lived on the top floor and did everything they could to make us feel at ease. Marie Antoinette and Cathy, the leaders of Lash, welcomed Rula and Khadija, two young women, and a few other people with disabilities from the local area. Whenever I visited the little community, I was touched by the beauty of Khadija. She suffered from cerebral palsy and couldn't speak, but her smile, her trust, and her shining eyes welcomed me each time I came. Through her body she spoke so lovingly. I was touched also by the pain in the heart of Rula's mother. Rula lived in terrible anguish and sometimes she would scream for hours. The tears of her mother were no different from the tears of a Christian or Jewish mother. We human beings are all fundamentally the same. We all belong to a common, broken humanity. We all have wounded, vulnerable hearts. Each of us needs to feel appreciated and understood. We all need help. Through Rula and Khadija, I saw more clearly how those who are weak and in need have a secret power to touch our hearts and to bring us together, whatever our religion or culture. People with mental disabilities are so similar wherever you go. In and from their place of obvious weakness, they respond to love, a love that affirms their value, a love that understands. They frequently radiate a certain peace and seem to attract others through the love and trust they live. If our little community in Bethany was accepted in the neighbourhood, it was because of Hadiya, Rula and the others. During my frequent visits to the community, I often went to Jerusalem, only a few miles away. Most of the Jewish people I met could not understand why we wanted to live with Palestinians. Aren't you in danger, they would ask. Our Palestinian friends were not happy either that we had contacts with Jewish people. It was difficult for both sides to see the beauty of the person 
hidden under the cloak of a different religion and a different culture. And the reactions of my Jewish and Palestinian friends are really no different than the reactions most of us tend to have towards those from other groups. We judge them according to our fears and prejudices. How did we, the human race, get to this position where we judge it natural, not just to band ourselves into groups, but to set ourselves group against group, neighbor against neighbor, in order to establish some vague sense of superiority? One of the fundamental questions for humanity is how to break down these walls that separate us one from another, how to open us up to one another, how to create trust and places of dialogue. The life of each one of us is a mystery of growth from weakness to weakness, from the weakness of the little baby to the weakness of the aging, dying person. All through our lives we are prone to fatigue, sickness and accidents. Weakness is at the heart of each one of us. Weakness becomes a place of chaos and confusion if, in our weakness, we are not wanted. It becomes a place of peace and joy if we are accepted, listened to, appreciated and loved. Some people are infuriated by weakness. They are disturbed by the cry of a child. Weakness awakens hardness and anger in them. Equally dangerous, if less obviously so, Weakness pushes people to a possessive love. However, weakness can also open up hearts to compassion, the place where we are concerned for the growth and well-being of another. To deny weakness as a part of life is to deny death, because weakness speaks to us of the ultimate powerlessness of death itself. To be small, to be sick, to be dying, to be dead, are stages in powerlessness. They appear to us to be anti-life, and so we deny them. If we deny our weakness and the reality of death, if we always want to be powerful and strong, we deny a part of our being. We live in an illusion. To be human is to accept who we are, this mixture of strength and weakness. To be human is to accept and love others just as they are. To be human is to be bonded together, each with our weakness and strength, because we need each other. Weakness is at the heart of belonging. So it is that weakness carries within it a secret power. The cry and the trust that flows from weakness can open up hearts. The one who is weak can call forth powers of love in the stronger. Do those who are stronger respond with love? because in an unconscious way they identify with the one who is weak? Do they in some way know that one day they too will be weak and will cry out for help, recognition and love? Belonging is a beautiful but terrible reality. In every relationship there are times of light and bliss, when two people call forth what is most beautiful in each other. They discover the joy of moving from loneliness to togetherness, helping the gifts of each one to blossom. Each gives and each receives. Each feels a certain fullness of life. However, we're not only light and gifts, but also darkness and depression. In each one of us there is a shadow side, which from time to time manifests itself in our consciousness through feelings of anger, frustration or depression. Belonging, then, can be painful. The conception and birth of a child is a new awakening of the heart. 
parents are called to grow in greater love, openness and gift of self. The beautiful side of belonging is how it calls forth what is most precious in the human heart. Belonging is equally beautiful for the child. She knows she's loved and that she brings joy to her parents, her body, her growth, her nourishment, her language, her security, all come from belonging. It is through this sense of belonging that she exists and begins to discover who she is and who she is called to become. Belonging, then, is a school of love where we learn to open up to others and to the world around us, where each person, every creature, everything in our world has its unique existence and is respected. We do not discover who we are. We do not reach true humanness in a solitary state. We discover it in mutual dependency, in weakness, in learning through belonging. I have learnt over the years how the personality and character traits of the adult are formed in the early years. As a child discovers at certain moments the imperfect nature of her relationship with her parents, she discovers through her inner feelings of depression, anger and revolt that belonging is a difficult reality. These moments are like a dagger in the heart, bringing the child to a place of confusion and anguish. Because she is so weak, helpless and defenseless, she cannot possibly understand what is happening, nor can she express her anger. She has to suppress it, try to push it down into the secret recesses of her being. So it is that the unconscious self, the shadow area, the inner darkness in each one of us develops. All the beautiful as well as all the painful childhood experiences affect children's development and their relationships with others, and forge their character traits. The life of belonging is what it means to be a family. If parents have encouraged initiatives and growth to freedom, if children have been listened to, helped to make their own decisions to accept and respect others, if they have been taught to live the to and fro of life with others, these children will later on be able to live other forms of belonging and grow to maturity with greater ease. So belonging can be a place of opening up as well as a place of closing in. It is the place where I discover all the things that go to make up my identity, family, culture, language, manhood or womanhood, how to live with my body, how to communicate, how to love and respect others. At the heart of belonging is the fact that I have received my existence from others and need to develop as an individual physically, psychologically, and humanly. Think of the immediate society of the child as the tribe and the immediate surroundings as the village. Belonging exists not only in the family and the tribe, but also as the child goes to school, shares in village life and discovers a wider sense of belonging, a belonging with others of the same town, region, culture, religion, and language. Sometimes the child meets people in the village who are different. Strangers, immigrants, people with handicaps, people from other social groups or religious traditions. She will pick up quite quickly through adults' attitudes whether such people are to be accepted and loved as fellow human beings or ignored, even shunned as the other, those who do not belong. And so we learn that those who are different, those who are strange, are either acceptable 
or dangerous. When a child acquires a language and learns how to relate to adults, to his peers and to God, when he learns the customs and values that have been handed down in his culture about how to live in relationships, how to deal with pain, catastrophe and death, he cannot help but think that what he has been taught is the only way of being and living. If doubt is allowed to creep in, the whole order of life collapses. And so, at the beginning of life, we learn that there is a right way and a wrong way of doing everything. We do not question, we obey at the risk of courting disorder. Some children react well to the lessons of life and grow peacefully. Others seem to go easily into discouragement and revolt. All, in fact, have come through similar situations. Is it because the capacity to accept pain is different? I do not know. Maybe each one of us carries a secret, the secret of this freedom, the secret of our being and of our destiny. If children experience weakness as a place of being crushed or manipulated, instead of a place of the binding force of love, a place which allows them to be themselves, love then doesn't exist. It is but a mirage which eventually leads to the destruction of personal freedom and innermost being. That is the meaning of Sartre's words when he says that love is only the eating of one person's liberty by another. Communion and trust are not then a sign of human plenitude, but of a lack of identity, a sign of weakness, of an incapacity to be and to assume responsibility for one's life. In this context, to be means to be strong, to defend oneself, to be powerful in the jungle of life. Communion is the to and fro of love. It is the trust that bonds us together, children with their parents, a sick person with a nurse, a child with a teacher, a husband and wife, friends together, people with a common task. It is the trust that comes from the intuitive knowledge that we are safe in the hands of another and that we can be open and vulnerable one to another. Communion is not a state of being, but an evolving reality. Trust is continually called to grow and to deepen, or it is wounded and diminishes. It is a trust that the other will not possess or crush me, but rejoices in my gifts and my freedom. Such a trust calls forth trust in myself. One who is weak, who lives in true communion with another, will not see his own weakness in moral terms as something to be judged, as something negative. He will only sense that he is appreciated, that he has a place. If he is mistreated, if there is no respect, if he is not listened to, not given any place, then he will be plunged into the chaos of loneliness, unable to defend himself. He might even hate his weakness. But it is not only the weak who live this, but also those who appear different, who do not fulfill the expectations of others. Confronted by such people, the human heart either opens up and becomes a heart that understands, or hardens and becomes a heart of stone. Those who are weak have great difficulty in finding their place in our society. The vision of the ideal human being as powerful and capable disenfranchises the old, the sick, the less abled. For me, a human society must, by definition, be inclusive of the needs and gifts of all its members. 
how can we lay claim to making a society when, by the values we teach and foster, we systematically exclude segments of our population? I also believe that those we most often exclude from the normal life of society, people with disabilities, have most profound lessons to teach us. And when we do include them, they add richly to us and add immeasurably to our world. Our society is geared to growth, development, progress. Life for most of us is a race to be won. Families are about evolution. At a certain stage, children are encouraged to leave home, get married, have children, move on in their lives. But people with disabilities have no such future. Once they have reached a certain level of development, they are no longer expected or encouraged to progress. There is no promotion for the disabled. And what forward movement there is seems frequently to be either erratic or cruelly sped up. Many move quite quickly from childhood to adulthood without passing through a period of adolescence. Others age quickly. Our societies are not adapted to cope very well with people who are weaker or slower. More important, we are not skilled at listening to the wisdom that can come from those whose life pattern is outside of the social norm. There is a lack of synchronism between our society and those with disabilities. A society that only honours the powerful, the clever, the winners, necessarily belittles the weak. It is as if to say, to be human is to be powerful. Those who see the heart only as a place of weakness are fearful of their own hearts. For them, the heart is a place of pain and anguish, of chaos and of transitory emotions. So they reject those who live only by their hearts, who cannot develop the same intellectual and rational capacities as others. That is why people with mental disabilities are excluded. In whatever vision of society prevails, it was never intended that they be included as equal partners with the powerful, with you and I. The anthropology and philosophy of each one of us flow from our fundamental experience of life, of death, of joy and of anguish. If we have never experienced a love that is liberating, how can we talk of love as a value? If our journey through life has been one of conflict and power, then our vision of the human being will be of one who prevails in conflict and wields power with assurance. The history of our world is the history of conflicts, of one group demonstrating its strength over another. Weakness is at the heart of the need to belong, weakness that we may fear because we have been hurt. So we band together in groups in order to share our common strength. So easily from this conflict arises, each group secure in certitudes and ideology. From there it is a short step to indifference, to despisal, and thence to suspicion, fear, and hatred. In all conflicts between groups, there are three elements. 1. The certitude that our group is morally superior, possibly even chosen by God. All others should follow our example and be at our service. In order to bring peace to the world, we have to impose our set of beliefs upon others, through manipulation, force and fear if necessary. 2. A refusal or incapacity to see or admit to any possible errors or faults. The undeniable nature of our own goodness makes us think we're infallible, 
there can be no wrong in us. 3. A refusal to believe that anyone else possesses truth or can contribute anything of value. At best, others may be regarded as ignorant, unenlightened, and possessing only half-truths. At worst, they are seen as destructive, dangerous, and possessed by evil spirits. They need to be overpowered for the good of humanity. Society and cultures are then divided into the good and the bad, the good attributing to themselves the mission to save, to heal, to bring peace to a wicked world according to their terms and under their controlling power. This is a story of all civilizations down the ages as they spread over the earth through invasion and colonization. Differences must be suppressed. Savages must be civilized. We must prove by all possible means that our culture, our power, our knowledge and our technology are the best, that our gods are the only gods. But this is not just the story of civilizations, but also of all wars of religion, inquisitions, censorships, dictatorships, all things in short that are ideologies. An ideology is a set of ideas translated into a set of values. Because they are known to be true, these ideas and values need to be imposed on others if they are not readily accepted. A political system, a school of psychology, a philosophy of economics can all be ideologies. Even a place of work can be an ideology. Religious subgroups, sects, are based upon ideological principles. Religions themselves can become ideologies. And ideologues, by their nature, are not open to new ideas or even to debate. They refuse to accept or listen to anyone else's reality. They refuse to admit any possibility of error or even criticism of their system. We human beings have a great facility for living in illusions, protecting our self-image with power, justifying it all by thinking we are the favoured ones of God. And this is not only something from past history. It is our world today. The civil wars in Algeria, the genocide in Rwanda, the conflict in the former Yugoslavia and between Israelis and Palestinians, the way men and women are treated in the most abominable way for their beliefs and the way the weak, those with handicaps, are written out of the equation of life, are all signs of this need to dictate that one group is right and the other wrong. How difficult it is for human beings to move from the recognition of the ultimate value of their own particular culture and way of life to the acceptance of the value of other cultures and ways of living. This movement implies a weakening in our own certitudes and identity, a shifting of our consciousness and a letting down of protective walls. The discovery of our common humanity beneath our differences seems for many to be dangerous. It not only means that we have to lose some of our power, privileges and self-image, but that we also have to look at the shadow side in ourselves, the brokenness and even the evil in our own hearts and culture. It implies moving into this certain insecurity that I referred to earlier. I'm Lister Sinclair. This is Ideas on CBC Radio 1. Tonight you're listening to Episode 2 of the 1998 Massey Lectures, Becoming Human, presented by the distinguished writer and social thinker Jean Vanier.
Insecurity is, I think, at the heart of one of the great human dichotomies, the need for belonging and the need to be oneself, a real person, fully alive. In the fulfilment of the need for belonging is a certain surrender of the self. The group, the community, the culture provide a set of received truths. But to go further in the search for human fulfilment and inner freedom, we need to reflect on the certitudes of the group, even to question them and take a chance of running against the grain. It is when we act as individuals, allowing our deepest self to arise, that what I call the principle of insecurity is most evident. We choose to live a certain insecurity and question all things held to be true. However, to be insecure in this way is also, I believe, an important quality for the group or community, that things the group holds dear be looked at, reflected on, deepened and questioned, the better to taste the truths contained therein. Let us look at this in some detail. In many countries of the world, the family, the village, the tribe still remain strong. People feel bonded to each other. This bonding gives security. People know what to do and to believe. Elders or leaders have a real power and authority. If someone falls sick, they're looked after. But there are disadvantages to such strong bonding. Members of such a community sacrifice their individual consciousness and freedom on the altar of security and unity, the altar of bonding. For some, this submission can cause pain, particularly for those who are young and ambitious, who do not want to be enslaved in ancient traditions and in the collective poverty that is embraced by many such communities. The human urge is to liberate ourselves from what we perceive to be oppressive belonging. We want to find freedom but we want to find it within some kind of structure. Among humankind, the family represents that basic unitary structure. However, everywhere we look, this basic place of belonging is breaking down. Let me take the country where I live, France, as an example. In Paris, one out of every two marriages ends in divorce, and in the rest of France, one out of three go the same way. Statistics show that everywhere more and more people are frightened of commitment. And why is all this happening? I believe it is because our Western societies have accentuated the power, rights and needs of the individual above those of the group. We have developed societies based on the principle of competition. People must work hard in order to succeed. Now, in a certain context, this can be healthy particularly since, as I've argued, a group can stifle both personal consciousness and freedom as well as the development of one's gifts and capacities. Competition stretches our capacities in order to win the race of life, but a focus on individual values and rights can push us into a terrible loneliness. This is a loneliness that can bring some people, especially those who feel ill-equipped to live in the competitive world, to the depths of despair a place where they lose their sense of self and of meaning. This is a place of insecurity at its most profound, insecurity in its most negative aspect. But this loneliness can also bring us to seek out new forms of belonging, places where we are helped to find a meaning for our lives, places where we may live out an ideal, where we may experience a true bonding with others, 
In the same way, this loneliness can bring us to search for new ways of bringing greater peace and justice to our society, to struggle for those who have been downtrodden, to struggle in company with those who have been downtrodden, in order that they may find an equitable place in society. This is a loneliness that will push some to seek new ways of healing the broken and those who cry out in pain. It will push others to seek truth and a new relationship with God. A society based on the Darwinian survival of the fittest, where each one of us fends for ourselves, has serious disadvantages. It promotes a strong, aggressive attitude and the need to win. It can paralyze the development of the heart, prevent healthy cooperation between people and promote rivalry and enmities. In such a society, which encourages an ethics of economy, of winning and of power, it is important to be admired. In such a society, an ethics of justice, solidarity and cooperation, an ethics of the common good can quickly fade into the background. Our own success is all that matters. How can Western societies encourage the development of personal consciousness, freedom and creativity, and at the same time help us not to fall into self-centered attitudes and motivations? How can we orient the development of the individual towards works of justice, to the struggle for peace, and to helping others to develop their gifts and find their place in society? I think the answer lies somewhere in the way we might redefine the place of the individual in the group and the place of the group amongst other groups. As a society, we cannot fail to recognize certain difficulties when the individual is placed at the center. A certain selfishness predominates, a selfishness that ill-serves the needs of the larger whole. But we also need to find some way around the problem of the group itself, the problem of competition that groups by their nature seem to engender. It is easy to fall into idealizing one's group and all its certitudes. It is easy in our weakness to devolve individual moral responsibility to the collective. But here and there, there are, I believe, clues as to how we may reformulate the notion of groups in ways that will allow for the development of personal consciousness and inner freedom. In this way, we become more fully human, more fully alive, the healthy individual within the healthy group. The history of civilization shows how men and women who want to commit themselves to a religious, cultural or social ideal bond together to live out that vision, to find the structures that are necessary for what they want to do, and to give mutual support and care for each other. The great world religions have generally fostered such small groups within themselves, where people come together with a common purpose. Let me give you some examples of what I consider healthy groups, living in a deliberately chosen spirit of risk, adventure and courage. They live in what I call a spirit of insecurity, the embracing of an unknown future in an attitude of honest questioning. In France, I frequently visit an enclosed convent where there are 26 women, young and old. They have come together to seek God, to give their lives to God, and to pray for all who suffer in the world. They live very poorly, work hard, and the discipline is quite rigid, but they are very happy. They laugh and sing with ease. I find them very free. 
They have found security in their life together, but each one lives a personal insecurity. It is never easy to seek God, to be true in community life, and to accept others as they are, to forgive unceasingly, not hiding behind inner barriers. A few years ago, I was invited to visit a group of Jesus people living in a broken-down area of an American city. When I arrived in the large former hotel in which all the members live, I found them to be a community of about 200 men and women, simply and poorly clothed, including quite a few punks with coloured hair. I was somewhat surprised by the rather strange drawings on the walls, the long beards and dresses. As I spent time with them, I discovered that they gave free meals each day to some 300 people who were down and out. I also realised that many of the members had suffered much, some through drugs and some had spent time in prison. I asked one of the leaders what their relationship was with the mainstream churches of the city. He told me that basically no one wanted to accept them. I found this group, which some might call a sect, quite beautiful. I was surprised by their openness. I was touched by how they were helping so many men and women to become more human. This community functioned as a group, with common ideals and goals, but they welcomed the insecurity of their position as they embraced the insecurity of the down-and-outs they served. They were constantly remaking themselves, and it's probable that their embracing of change and their openness was actually fostered by the opposition they faced. In some ways, these two groups, the convent in France and the Jesus people in the United States, are closed groups. Even though they are so different, one group facing inward to the life of contemplation and the other facing outward to the life of service, they are closed enough to give sufficient security to their members in order that they can live an inner insecurity and grow in love and in compassion for others. An individualism which exemplifies itself in doing things alone, in being concerned only with one's own interests, one's growth to autonomy, competence and power, is the antithesis of belonging. Such an individualism can come to birth out of anger towards an oppressive belonging, a demand to conform within a too rigid group, it can come from a desire to become more fully oneself and to develop one's potential and personal consciousness. It can also come from a need to free oneself from all authority and all law in order to have more power and wealth. It is easy to forget that the sense of belonging is a necessary mediation between an individual and society. It is, above all, necessary to help us in our growth towards maturity and freedom. Belonging is the fulcrum point for the individual between their sense of self and their sense of society. It is the safe rock where the individual stands in security, knowing who they are, capable of inner growth as they discover other realities born and developed in other cultures. Society is the place where we learn to develop our potential and become competent where we work and receive a salary which permits us to live. Belonging is the place where we can find a certain emotional security. It is the place where we learn a lot about ourselves, our fears, our blockages, our violence, as well as our capacity to give life. It is the place we also learn to appreciate others, to live with them, to share and work together, 
discovering each one's gifts and weaknesses. In healthy belonging, we have respect for one another. We work together, cooperate in a healthy way, listen to each other. We learn how to resolve the conflicts that arise when one person seeks to dominate another. In a true state of belonging, those who have less conventional knowledge, who are seemingly powerless, who have different capacities, are respected and listened to. In such a society, if it's a good society, power is not imposed from on high, but all members seek to work together as a body. The implication is that we see each other as persons and not just as cogs in a machine. We open up to personal interaction with each other in order that all can participate in the making of decisions. We support and encourage each other on the journey to inner freedom. We learn how to be close to those who are weaker and more vulnerable, those who may be sick or going through crisis or grief. As we accept our personal limits and weaknesses, we discover we need each other and learn to appreciate others and to thank them. So it is that belonging is the place where we learn what it means to be human and to act in a human way. The Jewish people have a deep sense of belonging. That is why when the prophet Isaiah saw his people going to the temple to fast and to make sacrifices, but not open to those in distress, he cried out, Is not this the sort of fast that pleases me? To break unjust chains, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free. Is it not sharing your food with the hungry and sheltering the homeless poor? If you see someone lacking in clothes, to clothe them. An openness to the weak and the needy in our group helps us to open our hearts to others who are weak and needy in our common humanity. It is the first sign of a healthy group. A healthy bonding leads us to a greater love for others. The second sign of healthy belonging is the way a group humbly lives its mission of service to others. It does not use or manipulate others for its own aggrandizement. It does not impose its vision on others, but prefers to listen instead. The group humbly seeks truth and justice. It helps others to make their own decisions. It empowers them. When a community is closed and fearful of dialogue, it is a sign of death, not of life. As we begin to see others' gifts, we move out from behind the walls of certitude that have closed us up, and this is the third sign of a healthy group. A few centuries ago, different Christian churches were fighting each other. Their theologies were calculated to proving that one was right and the other wrong. Today, instead of seeing what might separate us, whether as churches or cultures, we are instead seeing what unites us. We are beginning to see the gifts of each other and to appreciate them and to realize that the important thing for each one of us is growth in love and gift of self. Fourth, it is a healthy sign when a group seeks to evolve and to recognize the errors of the past, to recognize its own flaws and to look to those outside in addressing the future. The group that refuses to admit its own errors or seek the wisdom of others runs the risk of closing itself up to reality. Groups that develop with these four signs are, to my mind, healthy groups. 
They're helping their members to break out from the egotism which is inherent in all of us and to grow to greater maturity and inner freedom. So it is that they discover the common humanity which binds us all together as human beings in order that we may all be ourselves intertwined with each other, receiving and giving life one to another. Do we not all share the same earth and sky? Are they not for us as we are for them? God too is for us as we are for God. We all belong to each other. We are all for each other. That means that we seek to be fully ourselves, not held back by fears, prejudices, feelings of superiority or inferiority, fully alive to give life to others. I believe that people can only get involved in the common good of a nation if they discover how we are all called to work for justice and peace. The common good is that which helps us all to have a better life. The historian and ecumenical theologian Donald Nicol wrote widely on many subjects. In particular, he had an inquiring mind about the role of the great religions as vehicles for interpreting God. In his provokingly truthful book, The Beatitude of Truth, he wrote about how the Catholic and Protestant churches in Nazi Germany were unable to rise up in support of the Jews persecuted by Hitler, even though they knew what was going on, even though they knew it was wrong. These churches had become closed up in themselves. They had lost sight of the larger principles to which they were committed. All nations are bonded together in a common destiny. By virtue of our common humanity in the family of nations, we are all called to be concerned. When religion closes people up in their own particular group, it puts belonging to the group and its success and growth above love and vulnerability towards others. It no longer nourishes and opens the heart. When this happens, religion becomes an ideology, that is to say, a series of ideas that we impose on ourselves as well as on others. When religion helps us to open our hearts in love and compassion to those who are not of our faith so as to help us to find the source of freedom within our own hearts and to grow in compassion and love of others, then this religion is a source of life. The heart is never successful. It does not want power, honours, privileges or efficiency. It seeks a personal relationship with another, a communion of hearts which is the to and fro of love. This opening of the heart implies vulnerability and the offering of my needs and weaknesses. The heart gives and receives, but above all it gives. The heart goes out to those who are humble and who cry out their weakness and their need for understanding and love. It is precisely the human heart and its needs for communion which weakens the walls of ideology and prejudice. It leads us from illusion to reality, the reality of individuals just as they are. It is in belonging that people discover what it means to be human. The breakdown of belonging and the breakdown of the family go hand in hand with the rise of anguish, of loneliness and of chronic self-centeredness. And here we find the roots of our great social unrest. What are the factors in family, in school and in society that will help us to live by human moral values, to open up to the needs of others, 
to share with them and not just seek the most for ourselves and for our group. What we have lost, I think, is an understanding of belonging as a place of mediation. A place of mediation is that place of belonging where we find structures and discipline, where we can search for truth together, where we can find healing for our hearts and our incapacity to relate to others in a healthy way, where we learn not to be locked up in our own needs and desires, but to welcome others as they are, to accept that they have different gifts and capacities, that they are important, that they have value. The place of mediation helps us to discover that we are part of something much bigger, that together we can do something beautiful. How to rekindle motivations that urge us to open up to others and to struggle to make our world a better place for all? Isn't it the duty of churches, religions, humanitarian organizations, social workers, schools of thought and local governments to create situations, places of belonging and of dialogue where we discover that we can grow in love, find healing for our hearts and do something worthwhile for others? Isn't it true that a change in society does not depend only on the work of professionals, but on each one of us working together? I am not sure what shape society should take in order for people to be able to work together in greater mutual love and respect, but I do know that somewhere there have to be more and more groups of us coming together and this can become a light for the world. It is only when there is a to and fro of ideas that we begin to feel listened to, included, valued. What is important is that each of us begins to trust in our own beauty and our own capacity to do beautiful things, and that we do not live simply in a struggle to survive, to achieve more in a competitive society. When we begin to believe that there is greater joy in working with and for others rather than just for ourselves, then our society will truly become a place of celebration. Belonging, then, is part of being human. The first and primary belonging is in family, where we find life and growth and acquire language, customs, culture, attitudes, and in many ways our psychological characteristics. Growth in human beings is like the growth of plants and of trees. We need to be rooted in an earth, nourished by this earth and by the sun, water and air, in order to grow and to reach fulfillment, to bear fruit and give new life. If this earth is a place of language and a culture, it is essentially made up of people, people to whom we are bonded, people who love and appreciate us, people who call us forth to healthy relationships, openness and to love. Without other human beings, we close up in fear. Our personalities deepen and grow as we live in openness and respect for others. When weakness is listened to and the weak are empowered, that is to say when people are helped to be truly themselves, to own their lives and discover their capacity to give life to others, fear closes us down, love opens us up. It is this that I will address in the next lecture the path of healing from exclusion to inclusion. Everything that is human needs nourishment. The body, the mind, the memory, the imagination, and particularly the heart. 
They must be nourished by encounters with other hearts that can lead us into other gardens of life, into a new and deeper vulnerability, and into a new understanding of the universe, of God, of history, and of the beauty and depth of each and every human being. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to Episode 2 of Becoming Human, the 1998 Massey Lectures, presented by Jean Vanier. Episode 3 will be broadcast tomorrow night on Ideas. Becoming Human is available as a book and as a set of audio cassettes. The book is published by House of Anansi and can be purchased in bookstores and by mail order from Ideas. The five audio cassettes of the programs are also available. The cost is $21 for the book, $53 for the five cassettes, shipping and taxes included. That's $21 for the book, $53 for the five cassettes. Books and cassettes can be ordered from Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6, or by phone 416-205-6010, and email ideas at toronto.cbc.ca. Becoming Human was produced by Philip Coulter, and recorded by Dave Field. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers. <laughs>